Believe in yourself, cause it starts with you And then everyone else will believe you too And if it looks like you're the only believer around Just keep on believing, don't put yourself down Just believe Our guest this week grew up in Peterborough, Ontario, Canada and earned a BA in Mechanical Engineering and Business from McMaster University. From 2005 to 2008, he was the president of General Motors Cadillac. And from 2008 to 2010, he was the CEO of Hummer. Since 2019, he's been the CEO and co-founder of Electric Last Mile Solutions. ELMS is a commercial EV startup focused on redefining last mile deliveries. His name, Jim Taylor. And I'm Jack Rasula, and this is Anything Is Possible on News Talk 760 WJR. I'm Jack Rasula. This is Anything Is Possible, and we're talking to Jim Taylor, who since 2019 has been the CEO and co-founder of Electric Last Mile Solutions with Jason Liu. Jim, welcome. A real honor to have you. Thank you, Jack. Can we start by talking about your childhood in Peterborough, Ontario, and your mom and your dad, please? <laughs> well, that was a while ago, but uh, I probably was looking back now. Didn't know how good I had it, but I'd say a pretty uh, full and uh, loving and remarkable childhood that people dream about having and uh, pretty basic. You know, our family, as they say, didn't have much, but we had what we needed. My dad worked uh, for the big house at General Electric. It was one of those kinds of towns. There's lots around. The U.S. as well, that is a one industry town, one company town. And at that time, General Electric uh, employed almost everybody in Peterborough. And other than the Peterborough Peets and the Toronto Maple Leafs, there was only one thing to do, which was work at General Electric. So he was uh, in the manufacturing, manufacturing engineering area there. And I just grew up, uh, again, kind of a, a normal life in the suburbs. Jim, what's the biggest thing you learned from mom? And what's the biggest thing you learned from dad? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, I think again now, uh, Jack, as we as older adults look back at how we raised our children and you, you uh, look back with a different set of eyes, I think now than uh, if you'd asked me this question maybe 20 years ago is uh, we're lucky when you see families that I'd say work out and some that don't work out. <clears throat> There's a lot of role modeling goes on with uh, my wife's parents, my parents and seeing how were we brought up, you know, what things were normal, what things were givens, what things were... Uh, disciplined and, you know, how did the house, how did the house run? So I think, you know, this is going to sound a little weird, but <clears throat> it's kind of the operating system. You know, what were the things that, that uh, your parents just uh, made you do, you know, produced options What were the tolerance bands that you were allowed to live inside of. And my mom was very strict and, <clears throat> you know, it was a pretty small box, but I think that discipline when you're little boys, we had two boys is important. And my wife carried that on. She lived a, also a strict upbringing. And in Canada, of course, you have a, a British influence, a European influence of those norms and real basic things, you know, manners and uh, and uh, how to conduct yourself uh, ethics. So as we roll into having, you know, our children, our family, the, the next stage of that is what you learned from them. You really weren't paying attention to learning them, but uh, little do we know we absorbed all those and those became our normals. And then you attempt to pass those down to your children and make that uh, hopefully passed on to theirs. So I think they were good teachers and they set a good foundation. They were good mentors. And when I see all of the things that go on, let's say TV and high glamorous people that have uh, some form of uh, 
you know, a messed up or a challenged life, a lot of that roots back to the parents, you know, and how they raised their children and what kind of a house they came from, um, fortunate or unfortunate, of course. And so I was lucky. We had a, with a, a good house. Jim, where did you get your love for automobiles and trucks? Well, that one probably I definitely would give credit to my dad is that uh, thinking back, it seems that uh, I was just telling my son this the other day that there was always something broken in our garage that he was fixing or our basement. And, you know, it was not a throwaway society. Then it was, if anything, the toaster broke, you know, it was always, let's take it down to the basement and take it apart. So I think as a young boy, you just stand and watch your dad do all that wondering first, probably why, but then after a while it became normal. We had a whole machine shop in the basement with slaves and drill presses and pan saws and all the works. And I think back now that who has that in their basement anymore, you know, nobody, so I think some of it was just uh, um, having that opportunity. Of course, life's a lot of the times it's just what gets served up to you and you take advantage of it. So I had exposure to all of that, but we were always tearing apart things, building go-karts, you know, fixing our cars. So I think it was more the what led me, Jack, into the mechanical engineering space and, you know, where my education uh, took me to. We always had cars around, but, you know, to be brutally honest, um, some things, again, you've, you've done a million of these interviews. I don't know how many you've probably added it up. I'm sure you have the number, but you know, a lot of life is luck and timing. And so, you know, at the time that I went to uh, university and had to pick my vocation at that point in time, to be honest, I wasn't a car, you know, not I mean, lots of guys that uh, can't wait to get into the, the car business, but I separate it, uh, Jack, there's two different car businesses. There's the love of cars, car collectors, car drivers, people that uh, love being in their car. That's not the car business. The car business is, is engineering, designing, and making cars, and they're quite different. I mean, a lot of young guys that say, oh, I love cars. I need to be in the car business. So, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's totally different business, two different areas. So I ended up in the car business, um, basically came out of engineering school in a really good recruiting year. A lot of offers, fortunately. One of them was General Motors, and uh, met some folks in the Oshawa plant there, east of Toronto, about an hour, that uh, really attached to me and... Uh, I like them and what they had to promise, uh, given the other choices. This is uh, not a joke. My other best alternative was making diapers for P&G. <laughs> so I thought, all right, cars, diapers. All right, I'll take the cars. And uh, they worked out. <laughs> but through the years, Jim, you've had to deal with a lot of poop in the car business. So we're <laughs> yeah, talking to Jim fair. Taylor. We're talking to Jim Taylor, who worked his way up from in GM to become president, general manager of Cadillac. When we come back, we'll ask him how he ever did it. And I'm Jack Russell, and this is Anything is Possible on News Talk 760 WJR. Welcome back to Anything is Possible. I'm Jack Russell, we're with Jim Taylor, and from 2005 to 2008, he was president of General Motors Cadillac. Jim, how did that ever happen? Well, there'll be a, a theme here, Jack. I was a lucky guy. So it's the right place and the right time. And uh, Cadillac was, as you know now, in the rearview mirror and in the beginnings of, and then now has played out over a lot of years, a renaissance to change their overall brand positioning, all of the product lineup and uh, regain, you know, frankly, the, the ground that had been lost over decades as uh, the Europeans had moved into town and, and taken over a lot of that luxury space that Cadillac once owned. So it was a fabulous time to be a Cadillac. 
worked for a great guy, Mark Lenave, that uh, allowed me to have that position, frankly, John Smith, uh, some other great supporters at that time, Rick Wagner, that uh, was a little bit different coming from the product and the engineering side to take over that area as opposed to the sales side. So I came with a different perspective, but it was a wonderful time uh, introducing all of the new vehicles to the, the dealers and also expanding internationally as we went at that time also into China and opened up all our business there. So met uh, another side of the business and, you know, just a comment, uh, Jack, that a lot of people, especially in this town, because it's the auto town, live and, you know, sort of head up one vertical. You start manufacturing and you go right to the top of the manufacturing tree or start in finance, you end up ahead of finance. But in my case, I was, again, fortunate that I moved around to a lot of the different areas of the business and during purchasing. And then in this latest area, sales and marketing, which is a different space. And I uh, really enjoyed it. Met a lot of fabulous uh, dealers that are still personal friends today. And that time, you know, of course, Cadillac was rocking and rolling, great music, Super Bowl. It was a really wonderful time to be a Cadillac. Uh, you carried Mark Lenave, if the truth be known. So <laughs> well, Beavertown, Pennsylvania. Maybe, okay. maybe he'll finally admit that now. But uh. <laughs> We're talking to Jim Taylor. He's a most fascinating chap with a phenomenal resume. Speaking of which, you then go and become the CEO of Hummer. Talk about that chapter. Well, you know, as your show highlights, uh, I thought that that was maybe uh, an opportunity for the impossible, but we gave it everything we had to uh, save the brand because at that time when I first started, it was, uh, again, doing extremely well. But you think of it today, Jack, in the contrast of the times we're in now with electric vehicles becoming everywhere and every OEM announcing their aggressive moves to be electric across the board. Well, you go all the way back to that point in time, you know, the Hummer, unfortunately, was a poster child of of course, abuse and non-green. And so even though there were many other vehicles that they were competitive with, Land Rovers, Jeeps, and others that had exactly the same fuel economy and emissions, the Hummer, unfortunately, took on the responsibility to be the poster child. So under a lot of pressure, GM, of course, as you now know, decided to shut the brand down. So just while I was there, the party ended abruptly. And uh, then we moved to attempting to save the brand and uh, attempting to find owners for it. Ironically, as life goes in circles, of course, also, it turned out that we had sold it to a Chinese uh, company that had all intentions of buying it. And we went through a long process working with GM, of course, to make that happen. And at the very last second, the week before we closed, uh, they, they backed out. So unfortunately, the brand had to be closed. It was a, quite a sad day for hundreds of Hummer dealers, very sad day for Hummer owners, and very sad day for me. So that marked the end of my GM time and decided to uh, again, uh, in concert with Rick to check out and uh, go explore alternative second and third and fourth careers. When you went to Hummer and you came home and said, honey, we have to uh, get rid of the Cadillacs in the garage and we got to, you got to be driving a Hummer. How did you sell that one, Jack? Well, you might be surprised, Jack, but actually that might've been the best day of my wife's life. She loved her Hummer. You couldn't rip her hands off the wheel. And long after I left Hummer, after we shut the brand down, she drove that H2 into the ground. We finally had to, uh, again, tear her hands off and sell it. She loved the brand. She loved the, uh, you know, the brand attitude itself, but also the vehicle. And uh, we had great times with not her, not only uh, my wife, but also the kids and their Hummers. So, yeah, it was a, it was a good time and a good era uh, to have that vehicle. So it's great now. GM's, of course, bringing it back and, and ironically going from one extreme to the other as electric vehicles. So that'll make quite a statement now uh, being the opposite of what unfortunately caused its early death. 
All right, let's go to 2010. And you become a pioneer in the electric vehicle, the EV space. Uh, yeah. You were one of the early ones. And you go to work for Workhorse Group. Okay, the CEO, then board member. Talk about that chapter. Well, after uh, again, leaving GM right after Hummer, uh, and had to decide, all right, what do I do? Go back into well, a traditional auto space, first deal suppliers, other auto manufacturers, what to do. And again, this looks smart now, 10 years later, but 10 years ago, this EV space, you know, wasn't nearly as established or as good looking as it is today. But I thought, all right, I think it is going to be an area that uh, to become an expert in or to get involved in is going to have a lot of opportunity, but also, you know, it was kind of the wild west and some degree it still is as, you know, there are no clear winners, you know, which ways it's going to go might not go at all might come and go like it has in some other times, you know, way, way back to the EV one time. So I thought this will be uh, fun. And I said, like, kind of wild west for a while. And uh, so I jumped into a really, really small startup. And, you know, as big company guys, we we spent our life in, in the pros and cons of large companies. But I thought, let's go to the other extreme and go down to a pure, really small startup and see what that's like, unlike a big company. So almost from one extreme to the other. Uh, and hooked up with a small team in Cincinnati, and we grew what was originally called Amp Electric Vehicles. And then uh, eventually, as we bought one of the units of Navistar, then we turned that into Workhorse, and off we went into the commercial truck business. So I call it, uh, Jack, a good cold shower going all the way from the extreme of a huge company and you know huge budgets and huge teams and big brands to all of a sudden the other end of the spectrum where can't make payroll on Friday and have to take the garbage out yourself. That was a good cold shower after GM. We're talking to a fascinating human being, and he's a canceled Canadian because we've only we're into 14 minutes in this show, and he's not has not said a eh one time. Yeah, so, uh, right. all right. Speaking of which, then in 2014, you joined Karma Automotive as chief sales and marketing officer. Talk about that chapter, Jim. Well, that was, uh, and again, more investment in this EV uh, space, but from a different angle. So as you well know, again, in the history, uh, the Fisker Automotive Company had uh, surfaced and got to the point of producing vehicles and uh, quite successful uh, company, but that ended up very shortly. And as I call it, a, a perfect storm hit them with uh, recessions, with batteries, with Sandy, all kinds of things, unfortunately, took the company down in, in a pretty quick uh, way. So it was dormant a little while. And then another individual who I knew, it's actually based in Chicago, ended up buying it at an auction. <laughs> so it uh, went for literally cents on the dollar. And uh, he decided to bring the brand back. And ironically, again, we'll, we'll keep coming to this theme, a Chinese uh, company based uh, again in Chicago and said, uh, okay, I want to put this vehicle back on the road and relaunch the brand. So Thought, all right, again, it's a startup. They had gone from 7,800 people down to just 20 people when I arrived. And the job was, all right, you know, get everything put back together, the suppliers, build a new plant, uh, you know, open up new dealerships, uh, in it in, bring the vehicle back to life and launch it. So I like the, the challenge, obviously, and more EV exposure, plus the opportunity to live in Laguna Beach. Who wouldn't want that? <laughs> so off I went to uh, kind of spend a year and ended up there more than a year as it took longer than we thought. And, and that butt got the car back up, launched, uh, dealers opened up uh, selling. And that vehicle is is so beautiful. I mean, Henrik uh, obviously is a world-class designer and, and a very small group of people that have done iconic vehicles in their lifetime. And uh, 
When we go to shows with that vehicle, people would uh, just get like weak knees if you stand looking at that vehicle. That's so beautiful. So it was uh, back in a little bit more in my uh, wheelhouse with the luxury vehicle business and the brands and dealers. Uh, it was a great uh, experience. Again, and to be honest, uh, why people aren't buying electric vehicles. So despite the fact being gorgeous and you know your desire side, or your emotional side is saying, I want that, I want that. But there was still hesitation. Yeah, but it's electric. You know, Do I really want to get an electric vehicle? So obviously some people jumped in, we sold vehicles, but still a hesitation as this industry was maturing and um, all kinds from all kinds of areas uh, and, uh, and different angles. So it's a great experience, great time. And uh, again, we, we launched the vehicles, a lot of other uh, Good GM colleagues joined me there. Bob Cruz run. He's now at Faraday. They just went public last week as well. And we uh, kind of this uh, band of gypsies that are all around the industry that we uh, recollect, uh, join these companies and uh, and hit these startups. So there's uh, half a dozen of us that are coming and going and kind of crossing paths as we join each of these different companies that we're all launching. We're talking to Jim Taylor. When we come back, we're going to ask him about his latest initiative with Jason Lou. And I'm Jack Rasool, and this is Anything is Possible on News Talk 760 WJR. This is Anything is Possible. I'm your host, Jack Rasool. We're with a modern-day iconic figure, kind of like a Bob Lux was in the automotive industry, Jim Taylor's another one. Jim, let's jump to 2019. And you you and Jason come together and you start Electric Last Mile Solution. And you use something called a SPAC, S-P-A-C. What's a SPAC? Mm-hmm. Yeah, in simple English, a SPAC is a financial tool, a financial instrument that allows companies to get funded very, very quickly and go to the public markets very, very quickly. So traditional processes, everybody's probably heard of IPO, public offering, initial public offering is the standard path that you work years and years and years, raise money to stay alive, and then finally go public. Uh, SPAC instruments been around a while, but all of a sudden in the last year, it became extremely popular. So basically, I'll make it really simple. A group of people get together and say, hey, let's put a couple hundred million in a pot. So they call a guy like you and say, hey, Jack, you in? Sure. You know, sign me up. So all that money goes into sort of storage or a trust or a savings account. Then those guys have to start shopping. So they look everywhere, high and low, for a company that they would like to merge with. So they go through a lot of criteria and uh, finally land on somebody and say, okay, this is pure dating. That's why it's simple. I think we like these guys. They do a couple of dates, a few coffees, bring, uh, bring them home to mom to meet the parents, and then go, you know what? I think we like these guys. Let's merge. And so that's the whole, what a SPAC does is uh, basically companies like us find a partner who already has money in the bank, who is already public, and then we reverse merge into them. So we found these partners and they're called Forum Merger 3 in our case. And uh, then you go through a lengthy process of you know, legal and paperwork and SEC filings, you know, N and N, to make sure that you deserve to be a, a public company. And at the end, when you merge, the money that was uh, put aside by the SPAC guys becomes yours. And all of a sudden you're on the market as we you know, were and rang the bell at NASDAQ uh, a couple of weeks ago. So that's the shortest version, but uh, yeah, SPACs are all looking for basically a good partner. Our SPAC one before that bought a food company, before that they bought a software company. So they're not 
you know, most of them dedicated to any one space. They're just looking for a, a really good partner that they have a lot of confidence in that obviously is is going to do well in the, in the segments that they are. So our guys were shopping for kind of a disruptor and uh, something in this EV space. And I looked at some of the other EV companies. And when they met uh, Jason and I, I use this expression that was love at first sight. You know, we, we speed dated very uh, quickly through the process of getting to know each other and aligning and saying, let's do it. Uh, so we merged uh, at least the initial stage of this back in December and then uh, started uh, going as fast as we could through the process. Um, if you want to learn more, www.electriclastmile.com. Okay, you mentioned Jason. Um, great co-founders. You're the pretty face of the organization. <laughs> He's the brains of the organization. Tell us about Jason Lou. I don't think Jason is explainable, to be honest. Um, he is a true uh, enigma, a true one of a kind. And uh, obviously very fortunate to have uh, aligned with them. We knew each other through the industry, but frankly hadn't done any you know, hardcore business together. But as we uh, patch our pasts back together, we overlapped uh, one degree of separation and all kinds of fronts. But yeah, Jason's background is unique. And one is he's a hardcore engineer, very technically minded. But more importantly, he ended up uh, combining both private equity space and the investment and how Wall Street all works and what investors are looking for with an engineering and then eventually executive career running key safety systems, one of the largest safety companies in the world, and then eventually ended up selling that to uh, Takata. So um, all of those activities gave him two views. One is not just automotive hardcore requirements to be in the engineering space, uh, but also uh, how to raise capital and satisfy shareholders, because at the end of the day, that's what matters is shareholder return. When people buy our stock, they don't really care who we are. What we do, what they care is that stock goes up. So he's very, very, very familiar with that space. Um, originally born in China, but has spent his whole life here from college on. So he's very familiar, not just with the U.S. markets and how things happen here, but uh, the Asian markets. And as part of his company, selling literally to every you know country and OEM in the world, had uh, a lot of exposure. So true global executive, um, hard-driving private equity guy. So we're, uh, as you said, complementary on several fronts, but we get along great. And uh, say without him and him without me, I think without this partnership, probably wouldn't be here. But we, uh, we matched very well and uh, came through this process. And he and, also uh, ran Ford to China for a while. So, okay. He did, yes. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about the ELMS business model, Jim. Yeah. Our approach, Jack, is unique um, and on purpose, I'd say, a combination of both uh, Jason's and my backgrounds and uh, putting this model together. So a typical model and not, you know, throwing any uh, stones or any, any uh, comments about the others. There's, there's several ways to come at this business. Obviously, the legacy manufacturers like GM Ford to say, I'm going to convert my portfolios. There's... The other approach, I'm going to be brand new ground up. I'm going to start with nothing but dirt and work my way all the way up like Rivian for the last 10 years, Lucid for, uh, I don't know how many, seven or eight years. Uh, these guys have come from the, the ground up, clean sheet. Um, those are very expensive rides. Literally, you know, they start in a B and go to several Bs, you know, start start counting. Look at Tesla's Bs as, as those all added up. That's a lot of capital you have to raise and that's a lot of capital you have to create a return on. So in our particular case, we came from another angle, which is if you think of how Let's go all the way back and uh, think of the 70s, 80s. How did Toyota first come here? You know, they bring over a vehicle that's already successful in Japan, the Camry. And they start out one vehicle, then, you know, two vehicles, then 10 vehicles. And you wake up 30 years later, look what we got, plants and a you know, huge market share. Next, Koreans, they same play. Come over here with vehicles they already have in their market, but then adapted to the U.S. And then look, look what the history says there. They take a, a very, very competitive position in the bottom of the market because they have the cost point to be able to do that. 
So here we are now sitting, and I'd say a lot of Chinese manufacturers saying, gee, I'd like to do that too. But uh, there's a lot of uh, luck that goes into that of bringing vehicles to this country, complying with the regulations, launching a brand. So um, what we created here was uh, kind of a call it a hybrid American company based here in Detroit and Troy. All the software, the safety people, the purchasing operations, brand dealership are all here. But from a hardware standpoint, we at least kick off by bringing in hardware that's already in place on the road. And in this particular segment of commercial vehicles, it's already an established space. E-commerce is, of course, taking off in this country. And with uh, COVID happening, it got even more acceleration. But uh, this has been going on for a while already in China. So we're bringing over, uh, I call it donor hardware, as uh, our, our jump-off point. So in baseball terms, looking behind your Zoom there, we get to start at second base. You know, we don't have to stand at home and start swinging and we'll go through the billion dollar process. In our case, it's just a little less than a couple hundred million for us to get to the home base and to adapt these products to uh, U.S. regulations so that they're saleable and, of course, U.S. customer requirements. And so that's a completely different approach than all of the other uh, players that are coming and, again, raising billions of dollars and starting really a three or four year process to bring a vehicle to market and, uh, <clears throat> and, and uh, going through the challenges that that requires. All right. You're bringing over class one light duty minivans that hold up to 6,000 pounds. Um, are they actually being used anywhere in the world today already? Yeah, that's our advantage, Jack, is what we, we emphasize to uh, our potential customers is our, our phrase is proven and reliable. So as opposed to, hey, I'm a brand new brand and I have a brand new vehicle. How would you like to take a chance on me? Now, our proposition is, hey, here's, here is a utility van. Here's a commercial van. It's running around every day now in its market, delivering product, going through duty cycles. And so these already have uh, lots of miles on them and uh, lots of testing on them. So we're not, again, taking a big chance on brand new hardware that's never been tested. So having that already be in market, uh, we feel, is, is a big advantage. Second thing, Jack, you mentioned, um, just to go a little bit technical, so-called class one, as you mentioned, is anything that carries less than 6,000 pounds down in that space. And you call it, and it's true, small minivan. <laughs> Minivan's kind of the other one that carries people, and these are just for commercial use. But small van, there are no other players in that area. So as a startup, you know, that's one of the areas that uh, I'd say this as a double negative reduces your chance of failure. As you know, the failure rate of startups is very high. But in our case, we're going into an open market. There are no other players. There are other no announcements in that area of people coming into that uh, space. So we're going to get a big jump on, uh, on the other players. Fords come into the next class up, class two. GMs come into class two. Others are up in class three, but uh, we should have a one to two year runway, uh, at least initially, that allows us to get a good head start and uh, get some share and establish our company before, if anybody even does decide to come down and join us, because it's a very, very difficult price point uh, for the uh, other manufacturers to be able to reach. And the purchase price after you, you factor in tax credits is approximately 25000 And exactly. talking to Jim Taylor, if you want to learn more, www.electriclastmilesolution. And they went public very recently. And I'm Jack Rasool, and this is Anything is Possible on News Talk 760 WJR. Jack Rasoola, host of WJR's Anything is Possible, the weekly radio visit, brings his 15 years of inspirational storytelling to hardcover. With God, anything is possible. Anything is possible. 
14 of Jack's more than 750 tales of defeating odds and achieving the extraordinary. Like Bob Woodruff, whose job covering the war in Iraq nearly cost him his life. And Nick Vujicic, the limbless evangelist who has stunned millions with his message of acceptance and grace. With God, anything is possible. Order now while signed copies are still available at trustinusllc.square.site. That's trustinusllc.square.site. And as Jack says, Make it a great week because with God, anything is possible. Anything is possible. I'm Jack Basula. This is Anything is Possible. And our guest has been the president of General Motors Cadillac, the CEO of Hummer, and is now the CEO and co-founder of Electric Last Mile Solution, Jim Tate. Jim, if these things are already on the road in China, tens of thousands of them, what modifications are required to make them compliant here? Yeah, Jack, primarily safety systems. Um, China and Europe operate off the same, uh, more or less, I'd say, crash and impact requirements uh, to make the vehicles legal to go on the road. U.S. has a different set of standards uh, monitored by NHTSA and specifically motor vehicle safety standards is the code. So there's about 50, 60 different tests that the U.S. government requires all OEMs to put vehicles on the road here pass and uh, and comply with. And so the first task for us was taking, again, this existing hardware and bringing it here and then ensuring uh, with the modifications, because as is, they wouldn't pass. But that's part of our secret sauce with Jason's background in the safety area and the team that we've assembled here is knowing how to take those vehicles, make the right uh, adjustments to the structure and the airbags and seat belts, and so that they will comply. So that's basically the engineering phase we're in right now is uh, doing those modifications, run a crash test, doing some more modifications, doing the crash test so we get ourselves towards uh, full compliance. And uh, then there's some other, some other we call homologation things. The lighting has to be changed and some of the other uh, you know, features in the vehicle to make it adaptable to U.S. software. But the primary task is in the safety area. All right. Your battery range is 150 miles. It's a <laughs> six-hour charge. We're doing it in off-peak hours. When will we start to see these vans on the road? Yeah, our intention is, uh, and based on the schedules that we have, and you know the engineering forecast in this business, it's everything's a forecast because you never know if some engineering issue is going to jump up and and surprise you. That's the business if you've been in it long enough. There's always something hiding there in the weeds. But right now we're planning to say in the later part of September, last few weeks of September, we'd be initially launching the first vehicles to our customers, and they would go off and uh, begin their use in the duty cycles that these customers have and. By the way, Jack, the, the duty cycle on this on these vehicles is like all over uh, the map, extremely wide range. Of course, the package delivery guys, you know, the FedEx is the world there. The most obvious because it's last mile delivery. But in addition to that, for instance, universities have thousands, like like 30,000 of these vehicles that just run around the campuses, you know, and deliver things, take people. Great use for zero emission vehicles, short range. The battery would last a long time on one charge. Um there's the uh, cable guys, you know, Verizon, Comcast, all these kind of guys that just pull up and sit in front of your, you know, your house for half the day waiting to, to do a fix. So they don't really go that far. Perfect use for electric vehicles. We have a big uh, venture going on with refrigeration companies, just delivering short distance food or flowers or things like that. It is all over the map as far as the actually uh, uh, duty cycles. So as we start um, accelerating uh, through the fall, you know, October, November with, uh, you know, kind of a gradual ramp, we don't want to hit that too hard. And 
get ourselves in trouble, make sure our quality systems and all that sort of thing are, are functioning well, then uh, we'll be opening up that envelope and going what we call across the verticals from each of those different kinds of customers. You didn't mention another big one, the federal government, and our Secretary of Transportation is Mayor Pete from South Bend, <laughs> and it just so happens that our plant is going to be in South Bend, and Taylor, you have a little history with that plant. <laughs> well, how many times have I said this? Life goes in circles, so ironically, the plant that we shut down for, you know, the end of the Hummer brand is now the plant we purchased back from a Chinese owner to be our plant, so plant gets a new life, and uh, that's where we'll be launching these vehicles from. And as you said, the uh, Boudiget is from there, from South Bend, next door to uh, Mishawaka. So he's, of course, a big fan of where we're going. Also, you forgot to mention uh, Jennifer Granholm, of course, is in a senior position also in the energy business and from Michigan. She's, of course, a fan of our of our situation and, and the success as well. So we have people in the right place. And if you go all the way up, of course, the whole Biden administration is putting an enormous amount of of uh, emphasis and capital behind this entire industry. So it's a good time, I think, for us to launch uh, our new company into this space with all these favorable tailwinds. All right, you actually went public in July. Um, most startups don't make it. Why are you the exception? Well, I think uh, there's, there's a few fundamentals. I think, uh, I don't know if do you watch Shark Tank. Yes. yes. <laughs> Ironically, whether you're, you know, selling a lemonade stand or going public, you know, some of the fundamentals are the same as you, you see the questions, the tough questions by Mr. Wonderful. And they're not that much different when we've faced, you know, all of the, the big institutions that backed us and bought our shares. And, you know, first is explain to me that there's a market. So everything we just went through, what is this last mile? What is e-commerce? Is it really there? Is it true? So, you know, a lot of the people that come in and uh, propose a product on Shark Tank, it's like, I already have that. People already sell that. Why are you any different? So they have to try to explain, you know, why as a startup, they're going to penetrate space that's already well controlled. So the first aspect of that is, is we're alone in this area and we have a jump. Second is the business model. We aren't looking for and didn't need to raise billions of dollars to, to get this off the ground. It's a very, very, and a lot of people are using this term and I'll just say it, I think not using it appropriately, which is capital light. Ours is definitely capital light with only a couple hundred million. The plant only costs us 145 million to buy, for instance. So we've got to call it a mortgage on that uh, over time to pay off. So we've got a very, very low entry cost. So back to making a return for shareholders, we just have to earn our way back uh, on, on the other side of 200 million. That's a lot easier task. But I think the core also is this management. You know, look again, startup uh, um, failures and mistakes a lot of companies make is they either have inadequate cash and just run out of runway with really good management uh, our raise was over 300 million. So to cover our $200 million budget, we have more than adequate cash, but also the management team, you know, are they qualified? And uh, there's a lot of uh, great examples of young folks who, you know, as your motto goes, don't know that they can't do it and, and decide to go after the impossible and it works out. Um, but in a lot of cases it doesn't because experience does count for something. So I think the partnership that Chase and I have and some of the other team members that we brought on we have a really uh, good, solid group of a blend of new folks that don't know what they don't know in a good way. And then also very experienced folks who are not going to make uh, mistakes that are fatal. So that's why we're very optimistic about our success. If you want to learn more at www.electriclastmilesolution. Jim, as our time winds down this evening, speaking of new folks, what advice would you give to our young listeners? Well, this is, uh, you know, an auto town. And so there's so many people that uh, love this business and 
are in various aspects of it. But I think it's uh, kind of look what's going on here in this industry long term. You know, short term is only one, two, three percent of vehicles are electric. And so it's easy to, to not, uh, you know, pay attention to this space if you're just out uh, looking at the car park, especially in Detroit here. You know, an opposite, uh, Jackie driving around San Francisco and you see every other vehicle being a Tesla. It's a completely different landscape. But certainly with all the announcements, again, GM, Ford, the rest have been through here. This is going to come at us like a tsunami. So I'd say for the young folks, the advantage in this space is this industry is so young. You can be young and an expert. You know, in a typical company, especially the size of a GM or Ford, you just keep using those, a huge pyramid. And, you know, experience gets you the promotion and experience gets you an advantage because you know something somebody else doesn't. In this area... This is so young. We've got literally, I call them kids here, but you know, 30-year-olds that are experts in this space because it's so young. They're coming out of college so well-educated in electric vehicles. So I'd say for the young folks that want to you know, climb fast, uh, this is a great space to be in. And I think also uh, just another plug is you know, young folks get sometimes a little bit uh, conservative and <clears throat> protected inside large companies is that uh, as the startup stuff's going on and you're young and you can afford to take risks, jump in. And uh, you know, find one and, and get involved in this. If it doesn't work out, whichever one they pick. You know, you got lots of recovery time, but uh, it's a great place to be if uh, if you're young and aggressive and uh, want to move fast. Jim Taylor, I admire you. You're the whole package. Uh, a great human being, phenomenal business leader, and a pioneer in the EV space. Thanks a million. Keep up the great work. Thank you very much, Jack. Please join us next Saturday. Until then, I'm Jack Prasula. Thanks for listening and make it a great week because with God, anything is possible. Small. Believe in yourself.